Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is from Genesis chapter 42. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, if you care to follow along. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of of Israel came to buy, among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, they saw he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, 
the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is God's word. We're following the Genesis history through the life of one family, successive generations. We come to Joseph and his story. And as you know, if you've been following along with us for the last several weeks, Joseph, as a teenager, was clued in on his unique, very unique calling, Uh, though the specifics of his calling very much were a mystery to him. Uh, The fact that something special was happening in his life, he was aware of it from a very early age. And as we saw in Genesis chapter 37, he told people about it. Uh, especially all of his big brothers. He was one of the youngest kids in a very large family. And when he was, when he was in his teens, he, he said to all of his brothers, hear this dream that I have had. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his older brothers hated him. And hated the fact that he even told them what these dreams were. Their father's spoiled little favorite. So they plotted and they staged his death and they sold him off as a slave. And he ended up in Egypt. And for 13 years, Joseph endured slavery, imprisonment, but he prospered through all of it. The pampered, naive son became a patient honest, successful leader who led Egypt through years of prosperity into a time of famine. And now, and this is where we pick up in today's reading, after over 20 years, it's been over 20 years since they threw him in that pit, the brothers come to Egypt to buy grain. It's the only place you could get food in the region. And what we're told in verses 8 and 9 is this. Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. The narrator also tells us Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had had dreamed of them. 
There's so much we could focus on in today's very long uh, account. Too much for time's sake that we can focus on. Uh, So I want to focus particularly on the dreams and what they meant. We're not told this, but I, I have wondered, how often did Joseph think about those dreams he had as a kid? You know, did, did he think about those dreams when he was in servitude in, in, in Potiphar's house all those years? Did he, think about those, did he think about those dreams when he was sitting in that cistern by himself or when he was sold to the Ishmaelites who brought him down to Egypt as a slave? Did he think about those dreams? Did he think about those dreams alone in a prison cell? After he was falsely accused. Years went by. How often did he think about the dreams. The very unique dreams that he had had. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, if he did think about them. It was, not, it was not in a selfish way. Because he emerged through his suffering. As a man of impeccable character. Reputation. Uh, and a true humanitarian. What we do know is that when his brothers. 20 plus years later. Appeared before him. He immediately thought about those dreams. They were legitimate after all. The dreams were not a figment of his imagination. They were legitimate. God was indeed speaking to him through those dreams. But timing was everything. The timing of events unfolding was everything. God had given to a teenager a gift and a calling But that teenager was not ready to command either. It was through suffering that Joseph matured as a patient and wise and skilled leader. And only now, now can he command that gift. Now can he command that calling with integrity and ultimately for good. God entrusts his people. This is really what the New Testament says. That that God entrusts his people who follow his son Jesus with a purpose. We call it a calling. God entrusts people with a calling and with gifts, spiritual abilities to carry out that calling. God gives his children a calling and a gift. Now, I've learned that you can't normalize this. It is a unique situation that works very differently in each of our lives. But God gives you a calling, a purpose, and he gives you gifts and abilities and even experiences by which Uh, You carry out that calling. When I was young, I can remember in my late teens, maybe earlier in my teens and then into my early 20s, I can remember developing a general sense. I mean, so general that it was vague. And yet I felt it was definite, but a a sense of God's calling on my life. and, And I had a sense that it somehow happened to do with communication, being a communicator reaching people, but I didn't know how. I didn't know at what context. I didn't know with what gift. I had some gifts and some natural abilities and some things I had picked up along the way. I had a sense of the direction God was leading me, sometimes more crystal clear than others, but, but I didn't know what to make of all of it. And when hardships came and when unexpected and unwanted surprises came and when failure came time and time again, I doubted all of that. Didn't matter how sure I was of it at one point. When things happened that I didn't like, that I hadn't expected, that were discouraging, I doubted all of it. So, so if you're young, if you're a young person, I think our, we have some teenagers here. Our college students, I think, are on break. They're on fall break, of course. 
Um, but if you're a young person, or maybe you're not young, but you're still confused, I want to impress upon you today that maturity, maturity cultivates productivity. Becky is from an apple farming family in western New York State, and uh, right now, because my mother-in-law came down, we, our garage is full of delicious apples and the scent of upstate New York apples. But I want you to think about maturity and productivity, productivity like an apple tree. An apple tree is not productive when you plant it as a seed in the ground. An apple tree is not productive when you water it as a sapling. The productivity comes with fruit. And what I'm saying to you is it is not your giftedness. It is not your talent. It is not your destiny that produces productivity in you. It's maturity. It's God's design and timed maturity that cultivates your productivity as his creation, as his son, as his daughter, as his child. It is not simply, it was not simply Joseph's gifts or talents or his vision uh, that made him productive. His maturity is what made him productive. Look, we recently have seen uh, in, in, in past episodes uh, that his experiences in servitude and in prison prepared him specifically for leadership. We saw that he successfully prepared a nation, an entire region, for a severe famine. But look at how his maturity was evident in how he dealt with his brothers. That's what I want to focus on is his dreams as a kid coming to fruition not only in his success as a government official in Egypt, but his success in how he dealt with his family. At first glance, it really looks like, like Joseph is, is dishing out some payback, doesn't it? Uh, we're told in verse 7 that he treated them. See, they don't, they, don't, they don't recognize him. He looks very Egyptian, cosmopolitan. He's not the kid they knew 20-plus years before. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. Uh, and, and we're told in verse 7 that he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. So is Joseph acting in vengeance? It's a very good question to ask. Now, this is just my conjecture. I think in the very least he's having some fun with them. But let's think about this logically. When was the last time Joseph saw his brothers and what was that experience like? They had nearly murdered him. They threw him in... They threw him in a dry cistern. They sold him into slavery. We discover in verse 21 uh, that the brothers are talking amongst themselves. They're very distressed about whoever this guy is. He thinks they're spies from outside. They're very concerned. They're speaking in their native tongue. They don't know that Joseph, although there's an interpreter there, they don't realize that Joseph can understand every word that they're saying. And they say to one another, it says this in verse 21, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. You see it right there. The distress of his soul, the fact you don't learn that in Genesis 32 when they throw him in the pit, but you discover here he begged them as a kid. He begged them for mercy in his distress. So you learn right here that his last memory of his brothers was a desperately traumatic one. Now, I'm not suggesting that Joseph in that moment had uh, post-traumatic stress 
uh, disorder, but you do know that post-traumatic stress can respond to triggers decades after, decades after an experience that you've had, right? We discover in verse 24 that while Joseph was listening to them, he turned away from them and he wept. So seeing his brothers for the first time after 20 years invoked in Joseph powerful emotions, perhaps even fear responses. So as a government official with the responsibility to protect Egypt's best interests, but also as a little brother who remembered his rejection and trauma, Joseph is not acting in vengeance here. He is cautiously guarding himself. Joseph needs to know whether or not his brothers are trustworthy. He's trying to determine over the series of days and this wild goose chase that he puts his brothers through as they go back and forth from, from Canaan to Egypt and Canaan to Egypt again. He's trying to discern if he can trust them. And so that is great maturity, wrestling with intense emotion and not reacting. In his intense emotion, which we can all relate to, he begins the process of inquiry, both as a government official and as a little brother. I grew up on Long Island, which, not unlike the Chesapeake Bay region, is you're surrounded by water. And people have boats, and people go fishing, and people go sailing. Uh, Dad himself was a tugboat captain for, you know, he's been on the, the boats for at least 45 years, I think. Yeah, at least 45 years. And this is the saying you hear uh, in a seafaring community smooth seas don't make a good sailor. Your sea legs develop because of the storms, because of the waves, because of the current, right? You'll, you'll never be a good parent if you don't ever have to deal with disrespectful children. You're never going to be a successful inventor or innovator if you don't fail and fail and fail again and again. Joseph, through his hardship, matured into his calling. God gave him a vision and a calling and gifts to back all that up. But it, it was through his maturation process. The calling was always there. It was always legitimate. But Joseph had to grow into it. And finally, apparently, he had. And I think his greatest maturity was needed not to manage a national famine, but to manage his own family from who he had been estranged. His maturity cultivated his productivity and not just at work at home because you know that in the most intimate of circumstances in life it is where the maturity of you is required most have you ever grieved when you see such potential in a person go undeveloped or wasted have you ever grieved when you see yourself and the potential that you've wasted, the potential that others did not develop in you. I want to suggest that as we apply this aspect of Joseph's story to our lives today, I want to, I want to encourage you to shift the emphasis off of your giftedness onto your fruitfulness. I think part of the way we solve 
uh, the angst in us over unrealized dreams and underdeveloped talent and misconstrued callings or just having to wait like Joseph did for it all to become clear. We have to take the shifted, the shift off. We have to shift the focus off of our giftedness and onto our fruitfulness. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, As I said earlier, God entrusts to his people a calling, a purpose, along with gifts and talents in order to carry that purpose and calling out. For instance, the Apostle Paul said to to the Corinthian church, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There it is. God's Spirit entrusts to every believer gifts by which you can be useful. It's not maybe I have gifts. It's I absolutely have gifts that my Heavenly Father has entrusted to me. That I could be useful for Him. And to the benefit of others. But here's the thing. You will absolutely mismanage your gifts. If you do not cultivate the fruits of the spirit. You will waste or mismanage the gifts of the spirit. If you do not cultivate the fruits of the spirit. Which we frankly as Christians focus very little on. But they're right there. The apostle Paul again to the church in Galatia. The fruit of the spirit is. If you're wondering what the fruit of the spirit is. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. And Paul just takes one in another letter to the church in Corinth. Paul just takes one of these, love, and illustrates what it's like to have giftedness without fruit. To have the gifts of the Spirit and use them without the fruits of the Spirit. We'll just look at love. And this is what he said about love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I want you to think for a second about what Joseph must have sounded like to his older brothers when he said to them, guess what? I dreamed. He probably sounded like a clanging cymbal to them. Paul went on to say to the Corinthians, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Here's the point. Are you gifted? Are you gifted and talented? Did you make it into the program? Or are you, um, are you intelligent or resourceful? Do you have great ideas? Have you had dreams? Okay, good. But God is asking you this. Are you loving? Are you joyful? Do you pursue peace in your relationships? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you seek goodness as opposed to just being a skeptic and a pessimist? Are you faithful in all that you've done and who you're with? Are you gentle 
Do you have the ability to control yourself when you need to? Develop these. You have gifts? You have prospects? Good. So does everybody, okay? But do you have these things? Are you developing these? The Holy Spirit says. God's timing ensures that you will develop the fruits of his grace in order to employ the gifts of his grace. Gifts without fruit is a big mess. Gifts managed by, guided by the fruits of the Holy Spirit is true productivity. And Paul again said to the church in Philippi, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is doing something in you. He has entrusted things to you that he absolutely intends to bring fully to fruition. But you must must focus on developing the things, the character traits that he is most concerned about in you. It has taken me decades, decades by the grace of God to purge out of me the arrogance, the ignorance, the foolishness, and the fear that were present in me when I first began to get a sense of what he was calling me to do. The calling, the gifts have been just as legitimate, but there was so much stuff that had to just pour out of me that has been unproductive to the benefit of other people. It is through maturity that we become productive. And, and, and I can say this about myself, and I'll say it about you. Our capacity to love and serve and listen, and wait, and reason, and thank, and bless, as, as all of that, as that capacity increases, then your gifts and your calling becomes productive. So you must cultivate patience and trust that God's timing is best. The creator of the universe does not think like you do. We read about this earlier in Isaiah chapter 55. My thoughts, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The heavens and the earth, right? So like the ground you're standing on and the forest star and galaxy that you possibly could not see even with a telescope. Because what do we know? That the universe is always expanding. Okay, so the distance between the ground you're standing on and the ends of the universe is what? It's infinite. You can't measure it. And so God says, as far as the heavens are from the earth, so that's how far your ways are and your thoughts are from mine. Which means that God's intellect, God's calculations, God's reasoning... And God's timing are infinitely better than yours. But you want God's promises to unfold through your successful experiences. Through your pleasure and your comfort. So you interpret the bad circumstances and conditions in your life as signs that God must be unreliable. That God is not worthy of your trust. That God is out to get you. 
The skeptical person in us, the secular mindset that surrounds us, that has raised us up from children in our culture. It interprets bad circumstances as if uh, to bring to the, you to the conclusion that God must not be real. Or that God, in the very least, is not involved. But the moralistic mindset that's been cultivated in us, because we're natural, self-righteous moralists, that mindset looks at bad circumstances and interprets them this way. God must be punishing me. I must have done something wrong. Either God doesn't exist, or he doesn't care, or he very much cares, and I've done something wrong, and he's punishing me. Because look at what's going on all around me. See, a lack of faith interprets bad circumstances as though God is unreliable. But the Bible says, the Bible says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it when the Lord Jesus returns. It is God's love that guides his timing. It is not some vindictive cruelty that causes him to make us wait and wait and wait despite trouble or confusion, or misunderstanding. It is the love of God that guides his timing. Ages of time transpired between God's promise to send humanity a redeemer and the advent, the coming of that redeemer. Paul to the Galatians, Galatians 4, when the fullness of time, the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That means heirs, whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. Adoption as heirs. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That word, Abba, is lovingly intimate. You see, the incarnation, we talked to the kids about this today, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the good news, the gospel itself, is all proof that God's cosmic timing produced reconciliation and life and love. It was not immediately after he kicked us out of the garden, but it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son. So trust that that will also be true for you as you wait for your calling, your purpose, your gifts to develop. Maturity cultivates productivity. Maturity. God loves you too much to waste the calling and the gifts of his son or daughter whose time has not yet come. He loves you too much to waste all of that. So ask him to cultivate in you the fruits of faith and be patient. Let's pray. Our God, we rejoice in Jesus Christ who patiently waited his sentence of the cross and did not turn from it to the right or to the left. And we see in Jesus the picture of maturity that at just the right time, the righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us to you. Uh, Father, if your timing in our salvation was so perfect, then we ask for the faith to trust you with the timing of 
the details of our lives. Father, I pray for clarity for all of those here today uh, who remain confused about what you're doing in our lives. Uh, more important, Father, because we know that clarity doesn't always come, uh, we, we pray for the faith, the simple faith, to trust you with what we cannot see and what we do not understand. And we pray, as was the case for Joseph, that you would complete the good work that you have begun in us. Amen.